Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Jeremiah chapter 3, reading verses 12 through 19. I've been hearing about this bride that turned out to be very wicked. With an eye to the flashy, she was drawn away by her lusts. But you hear the response now of the bridegroom, the husband. Jeremiah 3, verses 12 through 19. This is the word of God. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, backsliding Israel, says the Lord. I will not cause my anger to fall on you, for I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God, and have scattered your charms to alien deities under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, says the Lord. Return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and will bring you to Zion. I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that there will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north, to the land that I have given as an inheritance to your fathers. But I said... How can I put you among the brethren and give you a pleasant land, a beautiful heritage of the host of nations? And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from me. The word of God, and may God bless it to our hearts. Three reassuring promises to a straying bride. Oh, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be an extraordinary thing for a man to take his wife back after she left him and lived with other men. If he did take her back, there's usually some other motive. Maybe it's a financial motive. Maybe she's rich. Maybe it's an emotional motive. He needs something from her. Or maybe it's because... He needs help with the children and he's willing to compromise. But in the case of the Lord and his train bride, he looked at her and saw that she was a serial adulteress. And he still welcomed her back. And the question is why? Surely God had no need for this wicked bride. Surely she added nothing to him. In fact, she was the cause that people turned their nose up at God because of how she behaved. But he called her back because he loved her. And he wanted to do what was good for her. That is true love. Self-sacrificing love. That's why this notion of marriage being 50-50 is such a wicked proposition. It's not. 
You marry someone to give 100% of your love for them, regardless of what comes back to you. That's when marriages are successful and blessed. See, the father had pure love, or the husband in this case, had pure love for his bride. And this is what makes God's restoration of Judah most extraordinary. And it didn't end there. Even then, even after taking her back, he says, I will promise you more. What a God. And these are the promises that you will hear. Not only will I take you back, but I've got promises for you. Our headings are three. Come, I will remove your sins. Come, I will restore you to your proper place. And third, come, I will remain with you forever. Our goals are today that you will praise God for his promises to his bride, which you are a part. And you will urge his trained bride to repent and be restored to him who cares for her. Even the one who sent his son to die for her return. First we look at, come, I will remove your sins. This is the wicked bride with the eye, the flashy eyes. The one that liked shiny things and was drawn away. God calls Jeremiah to prophesy toward Assyria and Babylon. Towards the north where these two enemies of God's people live. The adulterous bride, the northern part of Israel, was taken away captive in 722 BC by the Assyrians. And now 120 years later, the similar fate is waiting for the southern one and a half tribes, Judah and half the tribe of Benjamin. Both Israel and Judah were guilty of apostasy, a backsliding from their covenant marriage with Yahweh. And God says, I will forgive you completely if you repented. By the way, they had not gone into captivity yet, but God was treating this as a done deal. You are gone. You are in Babylon as far as I'm concerned. But I will forgive you and remove my anger from you forever. Psalm 86 verse 15 says, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy in truth. You understand what that means? To be full of something means there can't be any more. There's no more room for compassion because he's full of it. But God's forgiveness would specifically require that his bride acknowledge two things. Her sin or iniquity and her transgressions. She had to repent of not doing what she should. And she had to repent of doing what she shouldn't. Remember Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. But God's promise also required something more. Not only are they to confess their sins, but they had to show that they truly confess their sins. So she had to get rid of all her idols that she was worshipping. She had to stop running after idols, running after these false gods. And then God made this emotional plea in verse 14. 
Return, O backsliding children, for I am married to you. This is an emotional plea for his bride to return while confirming that she had strayed from him. And this emotional plea was really based on a marriage covenant with her. Remember the gods that she ran after, the Baals. And then God makes a play on words here. He used the word, you run after Baals. But remember, Bealti, which is a, a word that means, I'm married to you. I am the God that you should be holding on to. Instead of running after these false gods. I'm the one who cares for you. I'm not the one that says throw your children and burn them in the fire. I'm the one who says you better take care of my children. And judgment is waiting for you if you don't take care of my children. So they were called to repent. And they had to show it. What can we learn from this first point? First of all. When God forgives your sins, he stops being angry with you. Guaranteed, you're safe. He won't throw your sins back in your face like we might do. Remember when you did this? I remember June 4th, 2001, you said this. God never does that. He forgives. That's the real husband. Second... There is no half measure with God. He doesn't remove some of your sins. He removes all your sins. Why? Because the payment has been paid in full for all your sins. He doesn't allow any amount of sin to remain in you. You don't have to go like Islam and Roman Catholics and other religions. You have to go to hell for a time and, and you'll burn out some of that wickedness from you. All your sins are gone. But third, you must confess your sins. You must go directly to the Father through His Son. There's no veil to stop you anymore. You don't have to make sacrifice because the sacrifice has already been made. And this is true individually and corporately. This is also true nationally that God is waiting for the nations to repent. And yet there's also another principle that we should remember. And it's this. Just the general principle in life. Don't hold anger and unforgiveness in your heart. God didn't do it. Reflect God to the world. You shall not take vengeance nor bear grudge, Leviticus 19.18 says, against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor. So a good moral principle to learn from there as well. But God not only says, look, I will remove your sins. He also said, I will restore you to your proper place or second point God will not only forgive his bride for her sins and transgressions but he will also restore her to her home in Zion the house of God repentance would bring God's people back from Assyria and Babylon and wherever these nations took God's people they would be able to come back you know, the Jews were taken even to Afghanistan and India, down into Africa, west into Russia, uh, north into Russia, west into Europe. They were taken everywhere, and God is saying, look, I will bring you back. The 
problem is, so far, 120 years later, those who were taken into Assyria never repented. They refused his offer, and they never returned home to live in freedom. But Judah would receive that promise. They would hear the word of God. They would have heard the preaching of people like Ezekiel and Daniel. And they would remember the words of Jeremiah. And they would repent. And then God instructed the great King Cyrus, send my people back. And Cyrus would even testify in secular history that he had a vision and that God's people were sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city, to restore worship, to get ready for the spread of the kingdom around the world. And God says, not only will I restore you to the physical place, I'll restore you to the comforts that you had before. You will receive better shepherds to protect you when you were in Zion. What happened before? Before captivity, the prophets lied. Jeremiah was struggling with this. He would say one thing and then these fake prophets would come and say, no, you won't go into uh, Babylon. Babylon, you will be able to come back quickly. That's not a long captivity. They lied. The priests corrupted worship. They didn't worship God the way he should. They offered these sacrifices that were unacceptable. Whatever lame animals the people would bring, they would offer. They didn't care. They were corrupt themselves. And then the kings abused justice for financial gain. Many of them had sold themselves to the foreign kings and paid tribute to them and worshipped their gods. But now God said he would have better prophet, priest, and king when they returned from their Babylonian captivity. And these wouldn't abuse the people anymore. If you read Ezekiel chapter 34, you will read there of these wicked prophets, uh, sorry, these wicked kings, these shepherds of Israel, referring to, in fact, to all three, prophet, priest, and king. He says, my sheep were left to roam to go wild, and they were plundered by the enemies, and in fact, some of them were murdered by the people who should take care of them. But with the good shepherds, the bride would learn to, to properly behave with our husband. Should be trained well to be a good wife, to be a good bride of God. This promise of this better shepherd, of course, was not perfectly fulfilled after captivity either. It was only fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If you read John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Not like the shepherds of Ezekiel 34. And this shepherd came and even laid down his life for the sheep. Romans 11.26 says, And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That was the promise of God, that these shepherds are going to be okay. They'll be somewhat better. You can see afterward prophets like Zechariah and uh, Haggai. And good leaders like Joshua and Zerubbabel, the, the governor. But they weren't good enough. The people strayed again. And God had to send them into captivity the next time to the Greeks and Antiochus Epiphanes. But the Lord was still with his people. He still kept his promise that he will restore the people to himself. And that's what Jesus did. So what can we learn from this restoration with the restoring of the prophet, priest, and king. Not only will he remove their sins, 
but he will put them back in the house where they belong with the attendants to care for them and provide everything they needed so they would have no desire to stray. First lesson, God doesn't just rescue his bride who strays, he restores her to her rightful place. That's what he does today. He puts her back where she belonged. She is precious in God's sight. You see, the bride was bought at the price and the Lord cherishes his bride. Second, God wants his under-shepherds to be just as caring and willing to suffer for his people as the great shepherd. I'm afraid this is probably where we have our greatest trouble in Christianity today. Where the shepherds are not more interested in their own pocketbooks or their own prestige. To faithfully preach the word or to carry out discipline. Or to take the easy way out, not bother with people who have done wrong. That's why the church is weak. That's why the church is strong. Sometimes we have this idea that if we, we slacken things up, then more people will come to church and, and people will be better. And we don't insist that our young people remain faithful and wait until they're married for sexual relations. Oh, then they'll stay in the church. It's the opposite that's true. Godliness is what will win. And even if the church didn't get any big, it didn't matter. You have to do what is right. Because God wants a clean, a pure bride. So, third, you must pray for good shepherds for Jesus' flock. I might thank God that you have faithful men to lead the congregations here. And that many of our reformed churches are very good in that. But most of the churches are not that way. And we're not in a bubble. We're part of God's kingdom. And we must pray that God will provide good shepherds. First Peter chapter 5 verse 2. The apostle Peter wrote. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Serving as overseers. Not by compulsion. But willingly. Not for dishonest gain. But eagerly. Pray that shepherds will feed the flock. Not fleece the flock. And at the same time, you must pray that there are those who will not use the word of God as a sledge to crush people. But they'll use the word of God to strengthen people. To encourage them. To pray for them. The tendency you can go from one end of looseness to one end of being dictators. With just legalisms. Instead of praying for and support and cry with those who have sinned. To bring them back in the way of truth. Yes, we don't have to be afraid. If people are offended by what we say and do as ministers and shepherds of the uh, flock of Jesus Christ. But we don't go about trying to offend. Or use a sledgehammer on a gnat. But we will encourage and support the flock. Fourth, if you aren't a pastor, you say, oh, that's for them. Let them deal with it. No. In fact, you have to support your pastor. You have to support your elders. Someone wrote this. He said, the poorest village is an ivory tower if you have a pastor there. Why? 
because that's how God brings joy and safety and prosperity through the faithful preaching of the word of God. Yes, we have our weaknesses for sure, and yet God is pleased to use us to bring good to the church of Jesus Christ. That's the promise of God for a church that repents. And we come to our third point. Come, I'll remove your sin. I'll restore you to your rightful place. And then he says, I will remain with you forever. Verses 16 to the end. God will return his bride. He will restore her to rightful place. He will remain and live with her permanently. You know, it's a proven fact. And you can take this down with absolute certainty. Women would rather spend time with their husbands than go shopping. It's true. Scientifically proven. It's cheaper too, isn't it? And their husbands are sinful. They know the weaknesses of their husbands. And yet they would love to spend time with them. Imagine... The Holy One, the pure Son of God, the Bridegroom. Don't you want to be near Him? That's the promise of heaven, that God's people will be with Him permanently. That's what God is saying here. And what happens when a husband and wife are close together, and they're getting along, and they love each other? Children. Children come. That's the natural way. So his presence would mean productivity. The spreading of the kingdom. That's what he called us to do. When Jesus went into heaven, what did he say? Go into all the world and make a few disciples in a few countries and isolate yourself from the rest of the world and wait for my return? No. Make disciples of all the nations. Multiply. Multiply. Hosea 1.10 says, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it is said, You are not my God. There it shall be said, You are sons of the living God. To whom did God say that? Hosea. When was Hosea? Hosea was before the fall of the northern kingdoms. So more than 120 years before Jeremiah, Hosea was saying that. They didn't listen. They neglected the promise of God. And that's why there are Jews in China and Afghanistan and India and other parts of the world still lost in their ways. They were dispersed and they never came back. But then God says, I'll come back and I'll stay with you. Now that interesting couple of verses. God's presence with his people would be so permanent that they wouldn't even think about the Ark of the Covenant. Can you imagine that for the Jews? The Ark of the Covenant was the hope of the nation. When that was gone, like when it was taken to the Philistine territory, it was chaos. And God's saying, the presence will be, my presence will be with you. You wouldn't even think about the Ark of the Covenant anymore. This would have been most shocking. And by the way, in 586 BC, contrary to what you see in the Harrison Ford movie, the Ark of the Covenant was taken to Babylon. We don't know what happened to it. It was gone, and it was gone permanently. 
The Jews had no visual aid of the presence of God. And that's the top of the ark was called the what? The mercy seat of God. That's where there would be the conversation between God and man. And that was gone. And God said, you're not going to care about that anymore. You're not going to need that. Why? Because the promised presence was fulfilled by the Lord Jesus when he went into the temple. That's why that curtain was torn in two when Jesus was crucified. There's no more, no more problems. What did Jesus say when he's going back into heaven? He says, look, I am with you always. The Son of God, John 1 says, came and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. That's why John 1 says in the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That's the word dwelt. Same word for tabernacle. So the Lord Jesus was the presence among the people of God. The second Adam restored what the first Adam lost. Remember how Jesus would come down in the evening of the day and meet with Adam and Eve in the garden? That was a beautiful time. But then he had to go away because of sin. But then he came back to restore what was damaged. And God's people in Jerusalem would be so permanent that it would be called the throne of God. The permanent place. Yes, Jerusalem was left in ruins by the Babylonians. And northern tribes were destroyed and polluted by the Assyrians. But God would be with his returning bride. Both Judah and Israel would ultimately return. And he would write his laws in their hearts. Not on stone tablets. And the lust for other gods would be gone. And the Ark of the Covenant which was called the throne of God. Would be replaced by God's presence in their hearts. In the Lord Jesus Christ. God confirmed this promise. After Babylonian captivity, he said to Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 2 verse 11, Many nations will be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. So blessings would come to a united Israel, but not stop there. The spreading of the kingdom would continue, as Jesus said, All nations shall come. And by the way, this is yet to be fulfilled. The fulfillment has started. And we are part of that promise of the restoration, being close to God, and the multiplying, and the children increasing. And then finally, verse 19. God explained this was all of grace. And this is what I don't want you to miss in this. Yes, there is that returning Yes, there is that, or that removing of their sin, that restoring to their place, and that remaining with them. But why is that possible? This was all of grace. Israel and Judah and the children that would come after, we who are here, we could provide no ground for being restored to him. That's what we read about in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5 and 6. Having predestined us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself. According to how good we were? No. According to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Which he has made us accepted. 
by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. God had to become our father. See, that's the problem. How does God become our father? We pray, our father in heaven. But how does God become our father? Could only become God's children if we rest on the work of his son, Jesus Christ. So, removal of sin is based on Jesus. Remaining with the people, being restored to them, is the presence of Jesus. Everything in this sermon points us back to the work of Jesus for his church. John 1.12 says, But as many as receive them, to them he gave the right to become children of God. What amazing love. The bride did not deserve to be rescued, but God loved her and did it anyway. So what can we learn from this third point of the Lord remaining with his bride forever? Don't ever view the church as defeated or alone. Yes, it's true. Men will see her sometimes scornfully. Wander and sorrow pressed and schisms rent asunder and heresies distressed. But church is never gone. It might go through difficult times, even seem small, even non-existent. But she's never abandoned. Second, you have Jesus today in your heart. He's enthroned there and you don't have to wait for once a year. Ultimately, you will have Jesus in a place of no sin. And heaven is rightly called the land of great desire. Where we will be perfectly in the presence of Jesus forever. Third, wherever God's glory is, the Gentiles are attracted. Means the pagans. Even from the time of the first Joshua. Remember when they went into the land, the Gibeonites are thinking, we're in trouble. We better join these people. We see God is with them. What did Rahab say when the spies went to, the, to her house? Our hearts melted in fear because we knew who your God was. And I want him to be my God. She believed. And that's the point. When, when the church is doing its job. When that church is loved and happy and expressive. When the church tells the world, my God loves me. Like a bride might make others feel jealous inside when she shows, look at this ring. Look at what my husband does. Look how he cares for me. And that's what we do. Tell the world about what Jesus has done for us. That is what will draw people. But if we're always filled with complaining or we're fighting among ourselves, how will that help? How will that show the joy and make us attractive to the world? How are we going to have children if we're fighting with God and his laws? Fourth, walk worthy of your calling. Walk then in a way to show whose you are. Fulfill the creation mandate. Let Christ rule in all the world. Walk, as the Apostle Paul says, circumspectly. Not as fools, but as wise. Knowing whose you are. Let's conclude. God promised if Israel and Judah repented. He would remove their sins. He would restore them to their rightful place. And he would remain with them as they expanded throughout the earth. So brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Call the bride to repent. Call her out from her sin individually and collectively. It's congregations, it's denominations. 
Don't worry about losing friends. You are not called to make people like you. Don't worry if people are angry with you. Don't worry if people mock you. The truth is, brothers and sisters, the church is in big trouble right now. She has strayed. Many have not only run to other gods, they have sacrificed their children to Molech, turning them over to their enemies to teach them. That's where the government got them. And will tell them what they want. See, one of the wicked things the devil does is to provide a substitute parents. It doesn't say the parents are bad. It just says, we will be the better parent. We'll provide for you from the cradle to the grave. And they brainwash their children to follow them. Others are running after the gods. God of money. The God of prestige. The God of relevance. The God of fitting in. We so desperately want to do that. Many men have sacrificed not their children but their wives. Because they want to make more money and get the better job. Men have abandoned the doctrine of true creation because they want to seem relevant for the God of prestige in universities. Churches have sacrificed Christocentric worship for the God of relevance. We've sacrificed the singing of the Psalms for ditties, songs with very little meaning. Many still worship the God of fitting in. And that's why we're in big trouble. So that's why you're like Jeremiah to stand up and call the church to repentance. And remind her of the promises of God. So what will motivate you to call the bride to repentance? Well you have to know what the Lord experienced for you on the cross. Know that you belong to him. Know that his glory is at stake. Know this is also good for you to call the church back. Let her know of the glorious hope and the blessing of returning. That the Lord will remove her sin. That the Lord will restore her to her rightful place. That the Lord will remain with her forever. That's what God has called you to do. And if you're not a Christian, God is calling you too. If you hear this voice today, ask him to restore you. Because life apart from God is death. Don't spend eternity in hell with regret and a guilty conscience. The Lord promised if you call, he will restore you because Jesus died for sinners.